Romans chapter 4 with the bulk of our time in Romans 4. It's also going to be projected up behind me for anyone that would like to follow along in that way. So as we get into the second of the solas in our series, I just want to give you a couple of reminders to hang a couple of ornaments on the context tree here. We have to remember that each of these have a couple of important layers of context that help us to understand their significance in accordance to our confessions of faith, but also have historical significance that make them really difficult to understand apart from understanding the historical context in which they came about. So I'm going to use the introduction of each of these messages to give the historical context. That will be a little bit more of a lectury kind of part for about five to eight minutes. If you're not a history buff, I would just ask that you would hang with us during that part because it is important to lay the historical framework by which to get into the theological aspects of it. And then we'll go over the significance with present regards to our faith. So one quick disclaimer, I'm not somebody who really appreciates or prefers the kind of teaching that defines what you're for by preaching against what you're against. I find that type of teaching to be far too prevalent in Christianity. Um, I think it's kind of draining. I'm not really ministered to by those types of sermons that say we believe this, but they believe that. I find that usually there's a type of smugness in that sort of teaching, and I usually find that it's more about dogma than relationship, and often it's done sloppily and haphazardly. Um, usually the person's very sharp in defining what they believe, but kind of build a strong man just to hack off at the knees when presenting what somebody else believes. So as we go through the solas, I'm sensitive to this because I've heard several messages over the years that I would probably characterize as Catholic bashing. And I want to be super duper clear that I have no desire to do that, but we're in a series on the historical aspects of the Reformation, and it's impossible to do so without stating the historical and theological differences that drove the schism to begin with. So let me just say a couple of things by way of disclaimer before moving on and getting into our text. After the Reformation, there was a division between the Catholic Church on many areas and the Protestant Church that was upstart at that time, but most of them having to do with our salvation or soteriology, that's just a fancy word for the study of our salvation, Christology, which is the study of who Jesus is, and ecclesiology, the study of what the church is supposed to be about and the role of the church in this present context. Obviously, as a church from the Reformed tradition, we fall on one side of that and we don't just straddle the middle of those differences. And I want to just say that to be clear, that pointing out differences is not the same thing as bashing. Pointing out differences, um, well, just trying to make believe the differences don't exist and straddle some sort of middle ground might sound as if it's noble, but in fact, in areas such as this pertaining to life and salvation, it's actually dangerous and quite irresponsible. And lastly, we are not seeking to bash anyone, but we'll be trying to be careful and gracious in our language, but we're working off of the belief, and you're going to see this equation quite a bit this morning, and that's that Jesus plus nothing 
equals everything. And we're going to see that if you mess with any piece of that equation, you destroy the entire equation itself. So with each of these five solas, there are two important factors. One stated positively, the other stated negatively. So first, the positive. Each sola is a biblical truth that falls in line with biblically orthodox Christianity. So sola scriptura that we looked at this week and sola fide, meaning by faith alone, are things that come straight out of a plain reading of the Bible and they are things that orthodox Christianity has held to for millennia. And the negative, each of these comes from a historical context that's reactionary against something that was current at the time. So this is the area where we need to be really careful in how we recount the past of somebody else's beliefs. Historically, as we look at sola fide, by faith alone, this flag was planted by the reformers because of the fact that people were adding to the faith. So they were making it Jesus plus something. So by the very fact of saying that it's faith alone, they are distinguishing itself from faith plus anything. So we're going to be going over that quite a bit this morning. In faith alone, we are saved or justified. You're going to hear those terms used synonymously, but I will be defining them throughout the message or allowing the passage to define them by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, in the completed work of our Savior. In faith plus, well, it's what it sounds like, right? It's the adherents usually still believe that they are saved by faith, that they are saved as a result of grace, and they are saved by Christ, but there's a but at the end. Uh, they don't put a period at the end of that sentence. There is a but, a conjunction, and that's where our works or something that we do adds merit to what Christ has accomplished, and they bring that variable into the equation. Another thing that we need to be careful of before we even look into this text is we want to make sure that we are stating carefully what an opposing viewpoint actually holds to so that you don't just build up this fake straw man just so that you can lop it off and sound like you have a cogent argument. They would say something like this, we're justified by faith as a gift by God's grace, but they'd have contention with the word alone that we're going to be camping out on this morning. But we're going to see that if it's not faith alone, then you're undermining the entire idea of needing to have saving faith in Jesus to begin with. Adding to faith actually does not add anything to the faith. It sounds like it because you're saying adding to the faith, but by adding to faith, you are by necessity subtracting from faith, and you are actually making it something lesser, not biblical faith. So Jesus plus anything would be the opposite of this equation equals nothing. This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything ends up negating the whole equation, and you end up with the sum total of nothing as a result. And we're, um, as we look at the beauty of this sola fide that we're going to be seeing this morning, we're going to be seeing that even the faith by which we believed is a gift from God, 
and we fall deeper in love with him who saved us apart from ourselves, in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves, but because of his great love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his affection, that he wants us to experience the glorious riches of forever and ever and ever, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, causing us to rejoice in the fact that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So I'm going to pray. We'll dive into our text. Jesus, I pray that you would illuminate the preaching of your word and that you would be high and lifted up. You've said that if the Son of Man be lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. We pray that the Son of Man would be lifted up with clarity, with accuracy, and that you would be drawing hearts to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text is going to be Romans 4 and Paul's usage of Genesis 15 and Romans 4. And we're going to be looking at faith alone. But first, I'd like to define the term faith. And it's actually defined for us by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's a pretty famous verse. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. This, this Greek term for faith in that text is the Greek term pistus, which is almost always translated across the New Testament as faith or faithfulness. Other translations are either assurance or belief when it's translated in the ESV from the Greek. So this is not talking about mere mental assent in this passage. It's important to note because the term belief has been somewhat, and somewhat is probably being gracious, cheapen in our culture it's not uncommon for somebody to say that they believe something for that but that belief to actually have no tangible impact in the way that they engage something that they said that they believed in or the way in which they do life and that's completely foreign to the biblical understanding of the terms faith or the biblical understanding of the concept of to believe i spent a lot of time thinking about how do you explain faith and belief? Because they're almost words that are just presupposed in our faith, and we end up describing faith by faith. But if faith is really critical and we're going to be holding the faith alone, how do you take something intangible like faith and make it tangible as you describe it to people? So I've tried to do a lot of different word studies on each of the different terminologies that are used to be able to dig up some of the richness of this terminology from the Bible so that we don't have an understanding of belief or faith that is contrary to a faith that actually results in some sort of action or response. Um, you know, for millennia, when people said that they believed in something, that meant something is supposed to happen. And then you do something with that faith. So faith and belief go so much deeper than mental assent. I mean, we don't even believe somebody nowadays until they guarantee something, right? That's how cynical our culture has become. Uh, you remember Joe Willie Namath guaranteeing a Super Bowl 50 years ago? Yeah, if you're a Jets fan, it's been that long since you've won a Super Bowl. But he couldn't just say we believe we're going to win, right? He said we guarantee 
that there's going to be a victory. I, I remember watching a college football game last week, and this guy said, we guarantee there's going to be a victory, and then they played Alabama and lost like 49 to nothing. So what did that guarantee really mean, right? It just meant that he believed that they were going to win, but the term belief has become synonymous with really just opinion. So by saying he believed didn't mean enough, so you have to say I guarantee just to even be able to tell people that you believe because the word belief no longer really means anything. So the idea belief or faith has become synonymous with opinion or any fleeting thought that passes through my mind for any time whatsoever and then spews out of my mouth or spews onto a keyboard, that is now a belief. But when the Bible talks about faith or belief, it's talking about something much deeper going on. It's talking about an actual transaction taking place. When you look at the usage and the synonyms that it uses just in that one verse that I read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it begins to add words like assurance and conviction in the object of your faith to be able to flesh out what this term belief means. The Old Testament definition that we're going to be seeing that Paul uses from Genesis 15, 6 when he starts to unfold his argument in Romans 4. Um, I actually did a word study of every usage that's translated believe in Genesis 15, 6 and all of the other various ways that it's translated in the Old Testament. I've got a chart up here for you so that you could see how it's rendered based on the context. I think I have a chart. Do I see the chart and you guys are all missing it? No? All right, well, I'm going to go off the chart that I see. So point one um, says that it, it belief, it's translated as just simply believe 39 times. As in Exodus 4.1 when Moses is saying, well, what if they don't believe me when I go to Pharaoh, Lord? It's translated as faith or faithful 18 times. Isaiah 49.7 would be an illustration of that. It, it's defined as sure eight different times. We see that in Psalm 19.7. It's translated as trusted seven times, established four times, trustworthy three times, firm foundation three times, confirmed or made sure two times. So this word, no matter how you look at the way that it's rendered in the various translations, is a deep, deep word. The various contexts of it just mean, it means that it's suggesting this trusting, firm, sure, assured, complete trust, not just affirmation. So faith has to be um, both the object of the faith and a tangible belief resulting in a firm trust in the object of that faith in order for it to be a biblical faith. And keep that in mind as we go into the most, just, the, the most robust text of being justified by faith in our Lord. Let's look at Romans 4, starting in verse 1. He starts off by talking about the faith of Abraham. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to one who has works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one 
whom God counts righteousness apart from the works of the law. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Abraham is known as the father of faith. And the Jews widely accepted Abraham to be sort of the prototype of what it meant to be a person of faith. Even during the ministry of Jesus, you see Jesus talking about Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And you see the Jewish people get all up in arms in John chapter 5 and John chapter 8. And they're saying, what are you doing quoting Abraham? You're not even 40 years old. And here you are pretending like you knew Abraham as Jesus is teaching on the faith of Abraham. And Jesus fires back before Abraham even was, I am. And they almost stone him for blasphemy for saying I am, making himself out to be God and also making himself out to be greater than Abraham. Uh, Abraham is represented in scripture as kind of the difference maker in how man related to God. God even made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and then ratified it again in Genesis 15, and then Genesis 18, and then 21 and 22, and then again to each of Abraham's sons and the patriarchs, because it was an important covenant. So Paul, what he's saying in essence is, let's discuss this faith of Abraham, your forefather, your father in the faith. And, and in verse 2, Paul makes it really clear that Abraham's works are not going to cut it in order to gain acceptance with God. He even develops the argument by saying, if it did have to do with Abraham's works, then Abraham would have something to boast about. Because Abraham would have been able to impress God with his works. And if your works are so impressive that they impressed God, then he would have something to boast about. But he's saying that, that, that's foolish. That's not it at all. So it's not Abraham's works that saved him. So therefore, by conclusion, Paul arrives at, he's left without any cause for boasting. And by extension, any of us who have come to faith have zero cause for boasting as well. And just a quick tangent on that. This is one of the main reasons that I cannot understand why people who profess faith in Jesus and call themselves Christians get all judgy towards people who do not profess faith in Jesus for not acting like Christians. Every time I hear Christians complain about a coworker because of their foul language or a family member that takes the Lord's name in vain, and they think that it's their job to be the moral majority to correct them. I just wonder, like, well, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? You believe that you only came to Jesus, not by your works and by a supernatural exchange that took place, not because you were looking for him, but because he was looking for you, and because he grabbed you and made you have a relationship with him. So why are you then surprised that people that don't have a relationship with him, that have not been recipients of that grace, are not behaving like other Christians? It's not even being consistent with your own theology. If it was your works, then maybe you'd have something to boast about. But it's not your works, according to Romans chapter 4. So therefore, you're left without boasting. And when you make fun of or poke fun at or treat somebody who has not received the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone, 
for not acting like they've received it, then what you're showing is that you tangibly believe that your works had something to do with it, so therefore you do have reason to boast. And I would just encourage you, that's a problem. Don't be judgy. Nobody's ever going to come to Jesus by you being judgy. Uh, I I know I, I say it often, but I don't feel like it's something that you could say often enough. You can't judge somebody into the kingdom of God. I've heard so many testimonies of a faithful witness praying somebody into the kingdom, sharing the gospel just voraciously and passionately and begging somebody into the kingdom, but you will never judge somebody into the kingdom. And if you think you will, then you think that your works were something to boast about. So then Paul asks the best question that you could possibly ask as he's dealing with this and dealing with the faith of Abraham. He says, so then what does the scripture say in verse 3? Man, sola scriptura, just like we looked at last week, right? That's why it's the foundational building block for all of these five solas. He's saying, let's go back to the word. Is this a question that you ask when you're confronted with something that you need to give an account for to be able to explain the hope that's within you? Do you say, what is it that the scripture says? And do you know the scripture well enough to be able to go back to the scripture to be able to allow that to make the defense? This statement right here from verse 3 in chapter 4 that Paul asks, what does the scripture say, should be a daily part of every Christian's vocabulary. There should be something that you are confronted with where you're saying, well, what does the scripture say? And then go there and allow the scripture to say it. So what does the scripture say? He quotes Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, accredited to him as righteousness. So it was Abraham's belief that was counted as righteousness, not any works, not anything that he did, but God called Abraham to himself. Abraham responded to that call in faith. And then the rest of the chapter is about what it means for God to take that deposit of faith and then to accredit it to your account as righteousness. So you started out your account and you had nothing but a debit. You had a negative balance in your account. God gives you faith so that you can make this deposit in your account, and then God himself accredits to that account, and it's accredited now as righteousness. It, It is absolutely spectacular when you think about it. I mean, think of your transaction. Think of what we brought to the equation. As one of my old mentors used to say, the only thing that you brought to the table in this transaction was the sin that made it necessary. That's all that we had to deposit. So God in his goodness gave us the faith to be able to respond to them, and then he takes the faith that he gave us, and he accredits it to Christ's righteousness, and he uses it to cover your way overdrawn account. And to be fair with that analogy, you can only make the deposit because he gave you the deposit to go and make. So it's like when my kids, if you've ever had small kids and they open up a bank account and then you go and you give them money to go and open up the bank account. It's sort of like that. They're not opening up the bank account because your eight-year-old don't have a job. 
But if they do open it up, it's because you gave them something to deposit it into the bank account to begin with. But that analogy doesn't even work because this bank account and that analogy is so overdrawn that you wouldn't have been able to give them the deposit. It took Jesus to even make the deposit to be able to connect with Christ's righteousness to be able to fill that account. So basically it would go like this. We go to the bank and we deposit filthy rags into the teller. And then they take that filthy rags and then they credit Christ's righteousness instead of our deposit of filthy rags that we made to make. So in one glorious moment called justification, God takes the deposit of your filthy rags and he credits your overdrawn account with his righteousness and the perfect life that was lived in Jesus to atone for your imperfect life. And then he covers you with that and he gives that to you. And he says it's finished. In doing so, he makes a deposit. You want to hear something so cool? If you fail when you leave here, you can't overdraw that account anymore. The next time you struggle, the next time you sin, there's not an overdrawn account because you can't overdraw the mercy and grace that's yours in abundance in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. Before I move on to some of the practical stuff having to do with sola fide, I want to look at why it's important for Paul to quote Genesis 15, 1 through 6. So turn back to the beginning of your Bibles, or you can follow projected behind me. This is talking about Abraham, starting in 15, verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord... What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be like my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And now look, this is... Abraham's only contribution to all of this, Abraham believed him. God said all these wonderful things, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him as righteousness. This is one of the most quoted verses of the Old Testament in the New Testament, but why? Why does Paul seem to camp out on this verse? He comes back to it in Galatians. He loves coming back to this verse. Well, for two reasons. One, because we know that God made a covenant with Abraham— and this verse explains a lot about that covenant. But secondly, because God invites us into relationship with him by faith apart from the, uh, the law. And Paul wants to show this is not a new concept that I'm talking about. So first, going back to the covenant really quickly. Paul says something very unique about it. He says that Abram entered into this covenant before circumcision even entered into the equation in Romans 4. So Abram's response had nothing to do with the actual justification. He was justified by faith alone, sola fide, and circumcision was then just a mark of obedience, of a sign of that faith. It was the faith that saved him, not the sign. Just like today, we have what? When we open those two doors right there, we have baptisms. Baptism doesn't save you. I know that sometimes people say metaphorically, like, I feel like it just washed over me, and it just washed away my sins. But it's just symbolic, folks. Jesus washed over you. 
Jesus washed away your sins at a one-time transaction called justification that happened at the moment of your salvation. That's just a picture of the washing that took place. It's the sign of entering into by faith into the new covenant in Christ's blood. But we're saved by faith in Christ. And now there's an outward sign of this new inward relationship that's taking place as a result of God's grace and his mercy. But he also grounds this teaching about being justified by faith alone in Genesis to show something really important, folks. And this is critical before we get to any application. Paul needed to prove to him this is not some new Christian teaching. We just finished the book of Acts, and what did they keep bringing him into the courts for? What did they continue wanting to persecute him for? They're saying, what is this new teaching that you're bringing to us? And by Paul quoting Genesis and quoting the faith of Abraham, he's saying, this isn't a new teaching at all. This has always been the way that God has saved people. There's this wrong belief out there, and maybe you've come here with that belief, that people in the Old Testament were saved by the law, and now people in the New Testament are saved by faith. That's simply not true. Paul says in the book of Galatians that by the works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified. In Hebrews 11:39, when referring back to Abraham and Moses and some of the great patriarchs, he says, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised, for God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Meaning that we get the full story. We're not just in part one. We're not just seeing segments of it anymore. We've gotten to see the full story of the goodness of Jesus and what he's done for us. They were saved in looking forward to that and Jesus crediting what he had done back into their account. But what Paul's doing here is brilliant. He's saying salvation has always been a gift of God that's come by faith. So what does justifying faith look like? It comes from right belief. And it comes from right belief in the right content. Believing in the sufficiency of the good news of Jesus Christ. Believing the right things about the person of Jesus Christ. Believing the right things about the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And then submitting yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Every part of that is critical. You have to have the true gospel preached in order to have a true regenerating belief in this gospel. You have to believe that Jesus was who he said that he was in order for him to have accomplished what the Bible says that he has accomplished. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, he could never have accomplished what the Bible has said that he set out to, to accomplish. And you have to believe that Christ's death was and the resurrection was sufficient to pay both the full and total debt for your sin declaring you not guilty in a one-time judicial act called justification but at the same time not just declaring you not guilty because that wouldn't have been enough but through this beautiful doctrine called propitiation he was able to declare you innocent now no longer just not under the stain of guilt but bearing the innocence of the righteousness of jesus christ accredited to your account because of his accomplishment and nothing to do with yours isn't that awesome to put it another way i, I know there's a lot of doctrine but isn't that awesome i mean come on that's the gospel gosh can i get an amen thank you thank you nancy you are the best 
To put it another way, it's believing the right things about God and believing the right things about yourself. The right things about God, that he's holy, he's sinless, and therefore must judge sin, but he substitute himself so that he could be both the just and the justifier of those who would put faith in him. And the right things about self, that you are a rebel by birth and by choice. So by nature and by your own volition, you are a rebel. So am I. I'm not picking on you. Born in a place of enmity against God and cannot earn God's approval through your works. And that our only hope in this life and the next is the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that was ours through an exchange that happened through his atoning death on the cross. If we truly believed rightly about who God is and who you are, you would never believe that you have any works to add to the equation. I don't know who, who was here last week. Pete LaRosa, stand up for a second. I fought that guy after church. It, if I believed rightly in who I was, I wouldn't have thought that I could take in him. You could sit down or I'll knock you down. Um, I wouldn't have seen, it showed I did not see of myself rightly and I didn't see of him rightly. If I had, I would have reconsidered what I was bringing to the table in that equation. If we see of ourselves rightly and we see of God rightly, we're not going to think, oh, well, my, you know, it does have to be faith, but I've got some pretty awesome works that I'm going to tack on here because God's going to be impressed with those. That just shows that you don't see of yourself rightly. So by understanding just the reality of our two natures, it's evidence of sola fide. You can come at this scripturally, you can come at this logically, but no matter how you come at it, you're coming to the conclusion that I have nothing of merit to add to the equation. And this doctrine has been under attack, and this sola is just as pertinent as it was 500 years ago. Guys, it can't be stressed enough that the church can never emphasize enough the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. I am of the opinion, and thankfully so are so many scholars who are much sharper than me, that one of the biggest reasons that Christians fail to understand the reality of their new identity is because of weak preaching on the reality of justification by faith. If my identity, if your identity, who sits here, is based on your own righteousness and your own ability to see yourself as righteous, your identity will always waver. If my identity is patterned after my righteousness and it's going to fluctuate every time I feel or don't feel as if I'm righteous, ultimately making my identity or your identity based on your ability to perform. And that's why it hurts when somebody takes a shot across the bow at your identity because you think, how could this person possibly believe that about me? Right? Your it becomes an identity crisis and we're affected. How we respond when someone questions our righteousness exposes the holes in the breastplate of righteousness and exposes chinks in the armor. And this is when self-righteousness begins to enter in because of our insecurity. And our insecurity creates inability to be able 
to trust in Christ's righteousness. When we realize that justification means that we've already been declared by Christ to be righteous and that he sees us completely righteous because of him and not because of us, identity becomes about being increasingly hidden in the person of Christ. And that identity is no longer based on my ability to perform or your ability to perform, but based on the fact that Christ has already performed for you at the cross and declared that it was finished when he performed what he did on your behalf. In recent years, and there have been some full frontal assaults on the doctrine of justification. People have looked at the courtroom analogy of justification and said that this is old or archaic or stale or superstitious, and we cannot lose the courtroom analogy. The courtroom analogy is that you stand before a righteous judge and that you are polluted, that there is nothing that you can do to gain acquittal for your sentence, but then that judge comes and gives you the pronouncement of not guilt by giving you his righteousness, and then he takes your guilty offense and puts that upon himself, thereby declaring your innocence and purchasing your innocence forever. Guys, we have to hold on to the forensic understanding of justification or else the church loses the gospel. It's a fight that's worth fighting. Brothers and sisters, it is just one that you have to be able to stand on. And like the clip I showed you last week with Martin Luther, say, unless I am convinced by scripture and pure reason, I cannot, I will not recant. On this I stand. I can do no other. God help me. You have to be able to defend that. If you're here today and you've never embraced this beautiful truth, I remember those days. I remember just thinking if I could just be a little bit better, if I could just get a little bit better, maybe a little bit of church or a little bit of a self-help book or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And this is saying, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can embrace what Christ has done for you and he will take away the guilt and he will replace it with a covering of his righteousness and he'll do it right now if you put your faith in him. That's called the gospel. I don't believe that the church should always be in a defensive posture either, and I'm going to take about five minutes and wrap up with some application from this. There, there is an aspect of justification by faith that's had a resurgence in this last decade, and it gets me so excited because it's being articulated by some of the most pristine minds in Christendom today, and that's the reclaiming of the power of the understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and how it relates to our growth as Christians, also known as our sanctification. Look, the church moves in pendulum swings. It always has. It moves from here, it moves over to here, and usually it doesn't settle in the middle. It's like a clock just ticking and talking back forth. And I'm not talking about the fringe church. I'm talking about the true Bible-believing church. But it has had massive swings over the last century in how it looks at the doctrines of how Christians grow. And it looks at either intense scrutiny and really knowing, reciting my sin, staring at my sin, being hyper-vigilant against my sin through introspection, or a pendulum swing of an intense focus on Christ's forever accomplishment on our behalf on the cross. And I think that there is a lot of material out there to teach you how to know and identify your sin, folks. I don't know about you, but just the conscience, 
the Holy Spirit, Scripture, I'm acquainted with my sin. I feel the guilt and the reality of my sin. And then you place yourself under the preaching of the word or an accountability. Those things expose your sin. But the content and teaching out there on what Christ has already accomplished in conquering our sin and making us citizens of a brand new kingdom has really been lacking. And man, am I thankful for the resurgence in this. I've always wanted to be a voice to help lead a resurgence in this area because I feel like the pendulum swung too far in that direction and it's time for the pendulum to start swinging back on this one folks and i hope that you believe me i hope that you can tune in if you tuned out believe this because i'm about to preach some just some stuff that you just you just need to hear it's just candy for the soul i mean it's it feeds you i want to make sure that you leave here understanding this because it's of critical importance some of the value of our sanctification by just truly understanding of what Paul was teaching on with regards of his justification. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts on that. We could spend a greater amount of time just looking at him in gratitude for what he's accomplished on our behalf. The heart that is set on gazing on on him in gratitude doesn't yearn to wander. No matter, uh, so sanctification becomes so much more about magnifying Christ rather than magnifying our sin. And it becomes about choosing something greater and ultimately more satisfying. So the longing to return to that sin is not as enticing because the sin is no longer seen as as satisfying as it once was. And it's circular. Check this out. This is so cool. The more that we realize that Christ is satisfied with us, the more we put our satisfaction in Christ... And the less we seek satisfaction outside of Christ, making Christ all the more satisfying. Wrap your mind around that. The more you realize that Christ is satisfied with you, the more you put your satisfaction in Christ. So the less you seek your satisfaction outside of Christ, making Christ all the more satisfying and appealing. And then when we do sin, ongoing repentance is not so much about being focused on you being bad enough, but on Christ being sufficient enough and satisfying enough and justification is the engine that runs your sanctification that you always have to come back to i'm so grateful that people are starting to preach this stuff again i feel like people were afraid of grace for too long and without voicing it they preached a hesitant gospel that wasn't really a gospel and they were afraid to focus on Christ's total sufficiency because they thought that it would promote lawlessness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if you've never been accused of preaching lawlessness, you've probably never preached the real gospel. It does the very opposite. It doesn't call you to a lesser holiness. It propels you to a deeper holiness, but it makes sure that the motivation behind that holiness is a response out of gratitude rather than one of duty or merit or earning anything to stop short of preaching that is to stop short of preaching the gospel that the reformers poured out their life to be able to rescue back from the obscurity that had overcrusted it for over 1500 years so let me close with this some practical signs that you're believing in justification by faith alone in modern protestantism we preach a message of sola fide but a lot of times it's inconsistent with the lives that we're actually living and here's just a couple of of examples i know that it's not faith plus works, but I live like faith, plus works. A couple ways where you can see that is my inability to take a Sabbath. 
because I have an overinflated view of the value of my works and an underdeveloped view of the understanding of faith in Christ. My need to impress others or have others be impressed with me demonstrates my lack of understanding of just how Christ sees me through the lenses of justification. My propensity to self-justify shows that I have a hard time believing on Christ as the sole means for my justification. My drive to self-atone for my sin when I feel guilty shows my inability to see the full atonement that's mine through faith in the gospel. When we truly believe in sola fide and why it's so important, we can rejoice that I can see my works rightly as something that God prepared beforehand for me to walk in for his glory and for my joy, but not for my salvation. I could take a Sabbath because I can trust that God doesn't need me to uphold the universe. I don't need to impress others or care if you're impressed with me whatsoever because God's already impressed with me in Christ. And even when I'm not impressed with myself, he doesn't become any less satisfied. How awesome is that, Christian? Even when you leave here and you are the least impressed with yourself, God's satisfaction does not waver because Christ's atonement does not waver. I don't need to self-justify because I stand fully justified in Christ and I have no need to self-atone for sin because it's already been atoned for, which is why we can sing full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And we're going to celebrate that in communion. Jesus, thank you so much for the precious gospel that you have given us by faith alone in Christ alone. And I pray, Lord, that we would grasp the reality of what it means that we have been justified freely as a gift of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to uh, lead us into a time of communion.